So if you're enjoying, appreciating, benefiting from this series of short talks by Padma Vajra on the life and liberation of Padma Sambhava, him channeling these lightning flashes from the blue beyond, then please do consider making a donation to Padma Loka. We're still in uh, uncertain financial times. This year we lost our main source of income, uh, our retreat income, and even though people are starting to return to Padma Loka now, uh, our costs have considerably gone up. Uh, given the various measures that we have to put in place. So although we've benefited enormously from people's generosity uh, throughout the year, we really need to keep that stream of generosity flowing. So do please consider giving what you can. You can do that by following the link that's attached to this video or beneath in our YouTube channel or visiting our website and making a one-off donation or taking out a monthly standing order. Thank you. The mysterious Guru from Urgen, Padmasambhava, residing somewhere in India near to the Vajrasana, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. That's where King Trisong Detson sent the young Tibetans to find him. Padmasambhava, the fully accomplished Siddha, the master of all knowledges and sciences, the man with the strange reputation, the colourful, chequered reputation, the one the king was uneasy about, and yet the only one who could, fill, who could fulfil his heart's desire, the construction of Samye Monastery, the glorious. This Padmasambhava, he was a long time coming. So many were sent to find him, to offer gold and turquoise from the land of Tibet. And there were stories and rumours about what they found. That when he was offered gold by the young Tibetans, he just threw all the gold into the four corners of space. And then seeing the dismay of the young Tibetans who had come for him, he told them to open the flaps of their robes and out fell even more gold and precious stones than they had offered. The Guru will never come at your beck and call according to your whims and fancies when you're in the mood. Reality will not conform to your ideas of how it should be, how you want it to be. And the Vajra Guru, the adamantine guru, what Banti calls the no-nonsense guru, will never allow you to tame him and own him. But if you approach with a genuine aspiration, he will give you more than you could possibly imagine. And Padmasambhava had other things to do, things that only he could do before he entered the heart of Tibet for the destined meeting with the king. He had other beings to meet, other beings to communicate with. Then, in the autumn, Padma came to the castle of Mangyul, a fury of the region of Zhangzhum, Jamun, the eminent enemy, thought she could crush the guru between two stone mountains. But he rose up in the sky, and the humiliated fury offered the heart of her life. 
as her secret name. She was called Debt of Turquoises and Diamonds, and the Guru gave her a great treasure to watch over. Then, on the plateau of the sky, he reached the Black Castle. The white darkening of the glaciers thought a thunderbolt could, would destroy him, but the Guru, surrounding her with one finger, swept her away into a lake. The terrified Darkani fled as far as the lake of Palmopatan. At once the water began to boil, the flesh dropped from her bones, and the Guru, hurling a Vajra, blinded her in one eye. Whereupon she rose above the surface and uttered this supplication. Face of the Master, O Vajra, Doje Todrensal, I swear I will do no more harm. This solemn promise comforts me. What else can I do? I yield. I approach as the Guru's vassal. And she gave the heart of her life while he bound her by an oath. As her secret name she was called the unfleshed turquoise and diamond lamp. And he committed a great treasure to her care. Then he pushed on to the fort called the Bird's Nest of Oyug. The great Gainyen, Dorje Legpa Kyong, appeared amid his retinue of 360 brothers. Padma bound them all by an oath and left a treasure in their care. Then he came to the valley of Shampo. Shampo appeared, the white yak, the size of a mountain, from mouth and nostrils exhaling whirlwinds and snow tempests. Using the iron hook mudra, the guru seized him by the muzzle, bound him with the mudra of the noose, chained him, chained him with the mudra of the shackles and with the bell mudra, flogged him, body and mind. Now when the yak gave the heart of his life, the guru bound him by oath and entrusted him with a treasure. To test the guru, the spirit of the Argalis plateau took on the guise of a white reptile and blocked his path. The head reached the district of the Uyghurs, while the tail coincided with the Sog River of Kams and Gyomotan. With a staff, the guru transfixed the serpent through the middle. He said, you are the Naga king Chalk Kala, king of the Gandharavas, with the five hair coils. Depart and prepare yourself to make a circular ablation. The spirit fled to the ice-cold snows, but the snows melted, and when the greenish ice had given way, the black mountain peak could be seen. The, pit, the spirit could withstand no longer, so he served a gunna chakra, decked with dainties, and changing into a child, wearing a turquoise hairnet and a turban of white silk, he did obeisance and circumambulated. He gave the heart of his life, and having been bound by oath, he was given a hundred treasures to watch over. As his secret name, he was called Major Vajra of Great Power. So these are some verses from Canto 60 of the Padma Kaitan, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, describing a celebrated part of Padmasambhava's conversion of Tibet 
the gods and demons of Tibet are mastered and bound by oath. So this is what Padmasambhava spent his time doing before going to meet the king. Even with repeated delegations coming to him, he insisted on staying on retreat and moving through the mountains and the ravines and spending time by the lakes of Tibet, staying in the power places of the local gods and demons, the genies, to bind them. So what can we make of this? What can this mean for us? It's easy to be facile and shallow about this. Who are these gods and demons and genies? We might say that they're the local spirits of place, the powers of earth and water and fire and air, the energies of place. It's important to understand that they're not evil. They're more like natural forces, primal forces. Once, when I was with Bhante Ergyan Sangharakshita in a park in Birmingham in wintertime, I asked him what I was really doing when I meditated on Padmasambhava, which I'd been doing pretty much every day since he ordained me. I asked him, how did he see Padmasambhava? What did he look like to Bhante? I wanted a literal answer of what Padmasambhava looked like. Who is he? So after years of practice, I still didn't know who Padmasambhava was and what I was doing. And I'm not sure that I even know now. Bhante paused in our walk. He just stopped when I asked this question. And we stood looking across the boating lake, across the park into distant trees. And Bhante just said, I see Padmasambhava as the one who transforms, not so much evil, but the powerful natural forces around us and within us. He brings them all onto the path. And then we just carried on with our walk. Some understanding dawned at that time. It shed some light on some things going on in my meditation and Dharma life generally. At that time, an intensity, I can only describe it as an intensity of love, that's far too weak a word, of passion was arising in my meditation, especially in my meditation on Padmasambhava. And this sense of being in contact with something supremely beautiful, the beloved. And I wondered if, after what Bhante said, if what was going on was the natural force of love, of passion, was coming more fully into play in my life and was at least showing some signs of playing a greater part in my Dharma life rather than what it usually did, which, which would be to wreck my Dharma life when my love and passion went in the wrong direction. It's hard for us to know what these elemental and primal forces really are. The modern world is seemingly alienated from these forces, distorts these forces even. There's so much to say and explore here. One of the things we need to develop if we're to understand what this story of Padmasambhava might mean, one of the things we need to develop is much greater sensitivity to place, to the spirit of place. 
We need to go into nature, not to collect, but to simply be. To be absorbed in the midst of the natural world. To feel and sense the energy there of the trees and the waters and the plants and the animals. The look of that hill, the feel of that river, that lake, that mountain, that confluence of waters and trees there. That meeting point. Is that an abode of a God? Why can it not be? an abode of a God. Even in cities, even in our modern cities, these energies are present. We can be drawn to particular places in cities, old houses, cemeteries, that corner. There are layers and layers deposited there. We have this kind of modern uh, practice of what's been called psychogeography. We tend to think that we humans are making everything happen. We are totally dom- dominant. Even in the Pali text, it's made very clear, well, no, we're not. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, powerful spirits make men do things, make men build great cities. Once Bhante was in New Zealand and he saw the mining of a particular area in New Zealand. He thought that somehow the land was involved in this mining. So we need to begin, if we're to understand this story from Padmasambhava, we need to start with greater sensitivity to everything around us. Everything is alive, everything is living, as we are living, there is no dead matter. Millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth, says John Milton. If we're not sensitive, resonating with the life around us, we cannot be fully aware of the forces within ourselves. Bhante once said, to be a pagan is to have a positive attitude towards nature and towards oneself as a part of nature. We need a much greater sensitivity to the local, to the specific, to the particular, to the varied, to the hidden, to the asymmetrical. The modern world wants to destroy all that. Look at the uniformity in our cities. And it is the same within ourselves. As we practice the Dharma, we need to discover that we consist of so many different urges and aspirations, so many powers and forces which sometimes conflict oftentimes conflict, often there is just civil war in our consciousness or a terrible blocked peace, which isn't really peace. It's tempting to think that the Dharma will come along and just sort us out, make it all go away, all this conflict. But in fact, the Dharma can heighten our awareness of these forces Padmasambhava is the one who is vividly aware, totally aware of his environment with all its particular forces and energies, whatever they are. He's not just aware, not just aware of them. He can communicate with them. He can battle with them, wrestle with them, and in the end, bind them, enlist them to help, to assist in the great work 
of bringing the Dharma more fully into the world. And he speaks to us, the individual, in the same way. Padmasambhava is the one who looks into us and sees all of us and wants to bring all of us onto the path.